Good morning. What a wonderful Lord's Day it is, and what a wonderful day it is to see so many of you here this morning as we begin a new year. How wonderful it is to see some of those saints back and amongst us who have been dealing with physical illnesses and ailments. It is absolutely wonderful to see them here with us. And so this morning is kind of a fresh start, if you will, in some respects, being the first Lord's Day of a new year. During the first eight weeks of my tenure here, the last eight weeks of last year, I sought to begin by taking us back to the cross, to Jesus' sacrifice, to the plan of salvation that God had in place before the beginning of the world, sought to take us back to what Jesus went through. And so we spent, not every sermon, but the vast majority of those lessons focused on going back to the cross. As I prepare to present this morning's lesson, it would be impossible for me to overemphasize to you the fact that everything that Jesus went through, everything we've covered over the last two months, was endured largely for the purpose of accomplishing the very thing we're going to talk about this morning. And so as we go through this morning's lesson, I want you to think about those sermons that have been preached talking about all that Jesus endured for us. Because again, all of that is tied very, very deeply to the topic of this morning's lesson. The question for the ages, the question from the scriptures, the question of this sermon that I want for all of us to consider this morning is why? Why were you saved? May seem like a simple question, but we're going to see that there may be a little bit more to it than we typically think of. Why were you saved? Why did God put that plan in place, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, that particular plan, why did God put that plan in place before the foundation of the world, knowing the awful, painful cost that it was going to be to him to carry that plan out? Why was Jesus willing to go through so much? Why was he willing to empty himself and leave his home in heaven and, and come to this earth and become so vulnerable as we've talked about in some of those sermons? Why was he willing to endure the mocking and the scourging? Why was he willing to endure the beating and the crucifixion? Why was he willing to endure the separation from his heavenly father in a way that never had happened before and never will happen again? Why? Was he willing, as we talked about in one of those lessons, at least one of those lessons, why was he willing to pay the equivalent of eternity in hell for every single sin ever committed? Why? Why did he endure that? Why was he so steadfastly and, and absolutely, completely committed to enduring all of that just for you and me? There had to be a reason. There had to be a reason. 
There had to be several reasons, and they had to be really, really good reasons when you think about all that he went through for us. And there were. First off, yes, he did it because he loved his father and was devoted to carrying out his father's will. Yes, John 5, verse 30. John 14, verse 31. Yeah, he did it because he loved his father and carried out his will. That's the reason, one reason. And yes, because it is God's will that none should perish, but that all should be saved. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. 2 Peter 3, 9. Obviously, God and Christ love us so much that they want us to be with them eternally, forever in heaven. We know that, John 14, 1 through 3. And those are all great reasons. Those are all good and glorious and powerful and wonderful reasons why the Lord Jesus Christ went through all that he did to save us. And those are the reasons we like to focus on most. Because they want us in heaven. That's true. But surely, that is not, scripturally speaking, that is not the only reason that is not even a complete list of the ultimate reasons why the Lord Jesus Christ went through what he did. Why he went through so much to save and to pardon and to cleanse and to purchase you. Why he shed his own blood for you. And that brings us back again then to that original question, why? Yeah, those are some of the reasons, but that's not all the reasons. And that's something we got to get. we got to understand that, people. Not just so we can go to heaven. That's not the only reason. So again, the question. Why were you saved? Why? At such great and awful cost to the God who created you. This morning, we're going to answer that question and tell you why. And if I could quote Jesus Christ, our Lord. He who has ears, let him hear. Please open with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Titus. As we seek to answer that question, why were you saved? Besides obviously going to heaven where God wants you because he loves you. What's the rest of the answer? Why else were you saved? Titus chapter 2. Let us begin in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation. Notice this text is about salvation. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, watch this now, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Stop right there. That's the one we focus on. That's the one to save us. That's the reason he endured all that. that that's it. But notice according to Titus 2, 11, 14, that's only part of it. That's not all of it. Notice what he says. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good work. 
Notice there's a twofold reason that you were saved. Yes, so that God could, his grace appeared, yes, so that he might redeem us, buy us back, take us to heaven, save us, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Listen, that's one of those sentences, both parts of those are important. That's like, we need to repent and be baptized. If a person just repents and they are not baptized, can they be saved? No. If a person is just baptized, but they go back to their old way of life and they never repent and they never change, can they be saved? No. Repentance and baptism are both crucial parts of that conjunctive sentence, I believe is the word. When the Bible says you must do this and this, repent, repent and be baptized, that's what's going on here. He did this to redeem us and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Notice that we were saved to do good works. That's one of the reasons he saved us. We must never forget that. One of the reasons God saved you was so that you would go do good works. Just as much as he saved you to go to heaven, he saved you to go and do good works. To purify for himself a people zealous for good works. Notice, not just doing good works, but being zealous about them. It's possible to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Is that right? Sure. You know, sometimes there's somebody that you want to have come to church. And if you beg them and beg them and beg them and beg them and beg them, maybe at some point they'll come. But you know why they're coming, don't you? Just to get you off their back. They're not coming for the right reason. And so in the same way, it is possible to try to push and shove and, and, and just force somebody to go do good works, but that's not what the text is talking about. It says we should be what? Zealous. For good. We should want to do them. We should have this burning desire because of what God did for us to go and be zealous for good words. It's interesting, this Greek word zealous means burning with zeal to defend and uphold a thing, vehemently contending for a thing, vehemently. Same word the Apostle Paul used when he was talking about his former days as Saul of Tarsus. He used the same Greek term in Acts 22 and verse 3 in Galatians 1 and verse 14 when he talked about how he zealously persecuted the church. Now when Paul talks about zealously persecuting the church as Saul of Tarsus, he didn't let anything get in his way, did he? Nothing. Not distance. He went all the way to Damascus, persecuted the church. Distance didn't get in his way. People didn't get in his way. Other obligations didn't get in his way. That's what it means to be zealous. And we are to be zealous for good works. That's one of the reasons <laughs> Jesus went through what he did for us and saved us, to create for himself his own special people who would let nothing get in the way of doing good works. And I want you to look at how this message of the fact that we were saved to serve or we were saved to do good works is repeatedly emphasized in just the pastoral epistles alone. In just Timothy and Titus, this is over and over and over again. That's what you were saved for, was to go out and do good works. For example, I'm not going to turn to this one, I'm just going to mention this one. But in 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10, being constantly devoted to doing good works is precisely how any woman professing godliness 
properly adorns herself for her God. 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Being constantly devoted to good works is precisely how a woman professing godliness properly adorns herself in the eyes of Almighty God. Turn to me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 5. Back up just a few pages to 1 Timothy 5. Look what it says regarding some of those godly older women in the church who are widows. Look at what makes them worthy of the financial assistance from the church. Look at what he says in 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 and 10. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Watch this, verse 10, well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, that's a lot of work right there, isn't it? That's a lot of work right there. If she has diligently followed every good work. That verse, verse 10, is bookended with good works and filled with them in the middle. Turn to me in your Bibles as well to 1 Timothy 6. Look over here what he says again about good works. We were saved to do good works. That was one of the purposes for which Jesus went through all of that. 1 Timothy 6, look at verses 17 through 19. He says to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Watch this. Let them do good, that they may be rich, but not in the way he was talking about in verse 17. Let them be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. From the poorest of widows, 1 Timothy chapter 5, to the richest of members, 1 Timothy chapter 6, from one extreme to the other, we were all saved for the same exact earthly purpose besides the eternal heavenly one. And that earthly purpose is to continually be devoted to doing good works. We were saved, if I may shorten it up, easy to remember, we were saved to serve. That's what the scriptures tell us over and over again. If we were to look in Titus again, turn to me the book of Titus, look in chapter two and verse seven. The apostle Paul tells Titus that he himself must show himself to be a pattern of, guess what? Good works. In other words, the preacher is to be saved or was saved for the same exact reason every other sinner was. Nobody is immune from this. We were all saved to do good works. From the least to the greatest, every one of us as an individual was saved to serve. Not only does he say that in chapter 2 and verse 14, which we've already read, but he stresses that same message throughout the rest of the epistle. And here's the key. Watch this now. He stresses that same message throughout the rest of the epistle, but he prefaces it 
By talking about what Jesus did on the cross. Because what Jesus did on the cross, what Jesus did in coming and carrying out that mission, was so he could cleanse us to be a people devoted to good works. And so Paul will bring that into play here. Watch this. Titus chapter 3. This isn't something I just came up with. Watch the scriptures over and over. Watch this pattern develop. Tells them about what Jesus did on the cross, and he tells them the reason. The reason was so that you could be saved to serve. Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. He said that you used to live in sin, but, verse 4, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What's he tell them in verses 3 through 7? Jesus came to save you. What does he follow it up with? So you need to do good works. Verse 8, this is the faithful saying, a faithful saying, these things I want you to affirm constantly. What things is that? What things are those? Those things he just told you about being saved. I want you to affirm them constantly. Why? Why keep stressing the cross? That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good I want you to keep drumming on these people, Titus. I want you to continually tell them about the cross and the grace that they have and how God saved them. Why? So that they can be reminded that the whole purpose was so that they would go and do good works. He reiterates this again. Look in chapter 3 of Titus. Look at verse 14. He wraps it up. He keeps going back to this, people. He says... In verse 14 of Titus 3, and let our people also learn to, notice it doesn't say do good works. They were already God's people. They knew they were to do good works. He doesn't say do them. He says what? Maintain them. Is it easy to lose focus in our daily lives? We heard a prayer about that just a few minutes ago. It's easy to lose focus. You know, the church in Ephesus, as we read uh, Revelation chapter 2, the church in Ephesus had lost their first love. They were doing a lot of great stuff, but they were missing some of, some of that that they had at the beginning. They missing something. They taken something for granted. They just didn't have that first love. They lost something somewhere along the way. And if we're not careful, we can start out coming up out of that baptistry and we can be charged up and ready to take on the world. We're ready to do good and to serve and to, to, to do whatever it takes. We just want to tell somebody about Jesus. Then life happens. Five years down the road, ten years down the road, sometimes six months, sadly, down the road. We've lost focus. What he's telling Titus is to make sure our people learn to maintain good works, to keep that going, not to just start. Folks, Anybody can start the race to heaven. Is that right? You've got to finish. The finishing is what counts. I'm sure in this congregation over the years, just like every other congregation of the Lord's Church, you've had people that have started the race who are no longer running. Is that right? Doesn't mean when they come out of the baptistry they ever intended to stop running. Things got in the way. 
cares of life, rose up and choked the word. We must be careful to maintain good works, to keep on doing those good works. That's why we were saved. We see that same pattern over and over again in Scripture. It talks about what God did for us lost and selfish sinners, and then it launches right into do good works. He came to save you, do good works. For example, let me show you this pattern just in brief in a couple other places. Turn to me to Romans, if you would. Book of Romans, chapters 11 and 12. Romans 11 and 12. Jesus Christ came and died in order to create a saved, cleansed, selfless body of sincere and self-sacrificing servants. Yes, to take us to heaven, but we got something to do before we get there. And he saved us to do that work here on earth just as much as he saved us to take us to heaven. I'm not going to read through Romans 11, but if you go home and you read through Romans 11, or if you're familiar with it, you know that in Romans chapter 11, it talks about this magnificent plan of God to graft us in, how he saved us, how it's all about God and his great mercy and his wisdom and, and what he's done, and he saved us. And look at chapter 12 and verse 1. Because of that, Paul says, Remember, when this was written, there was no 12-1 here. It just flowed. This was the very next line. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. He said, I am begging you. That's Paul's way of saying, I am begging you. I beseech you, therefore. And we know if the therefore is therefore, it connects it to what he's just said in chapter 11. It connects it back to the grace of God. It connects it back to our salvation. He says, I beg you, therefore, brethren. By the mercies of God, because that mercy I've just talked about in his saving you, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. God saved you and gave you his mercy so that you would become a living sacrifice, so that you would be devoted to zealously doing good works. That is your reasonable service, and I love that word reasonable there. It's only reasonable for God to say to us, after all I've done for you, after all this mercy that you've got, you need to focus on that. All I'm asking you to do now is serve me. All I'm asking you to do now is to serve others, to do what Christ did. And he goes on to say in the rest of chapter 12, if I can summarize it this way from verse 2 all the way through to verse 21, you know what he goes on to say? You were saved to serve. That's the rest of chapter 12. But notice again, tells them first about their salvation, then launches right into the reason they were saved was to do good works. We see the same thing if you turn to me briefly to Ephesians 2. This pattern is, is all over the New Testament. It's imprinted with it. It's embedded in it. I'm not going to read but one verse here because this is a very familiar passage that most of you know. In Ephesians chapter 2, it sounds just like what we earlier read from Titus. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he says, you were lost. Children of wrath. Verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead. You see there in chapter 2 and verse 4. And he goes on in verses 4 all the way down through to verse 9 
talked about this wonderful salvation we have, how God's grace and mercy has put us in Christ. Yes, we have to obey the gospel. Yes, we have to accept it. But he talks about you are saved by grace through faith. Grace is God reaching down to us with the cross and everything Jesus did for us. We are saved by his grace through our faith when we respond appropriately to that. But it, again, verses 1 through 3 is about how lost we were. Verses 4 through 9 are about how God saved us by his grace and how awesome God is. Guess what? Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship. In other words, God did it through his grace. We are his workmanship. See that? Created in Christ Jesus. Verse 10, for what purpose? For good works. All that Jesus went through, he went through to create for himself a people zealous for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Finally, if you will look with me in 1 Peter, chapter 2. See the same message again. Say, Douglas, why are you going over and over and over? I want us to see how prominent this is. We were not just saved go to heaven. We were saved to serve on earth. Just as much as we were saved to go to heaven. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, Peter addresses it this way. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. By the way, that phrase, his own special people, only occurs twice in the entire New Testament his own special people. And in both cases, whether it's Titus or Peter, we're his own special people that were saved for one special purpose. That is to do good works. It says here, we're a chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, his own special people. Why? That's the question we start. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's why you're a chosen generation. That's why you're a royal priesthood. That's why you're a holy nation. That's what makes you God's own special people. You were saved for a reason that you may proclaim the praises of God. You were saved to sound forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his life. You know how we do that? You know what he's talking about? God saved us so we'd go tell others what an awesome God he is. Simply put, that's it. We were saved to serve, yes, but one of the ways we serve and the good works we do, we were saved so that we would go tell others about Jesus Christ. That's part of the good works that we are to do. And I'm not talking about, hear me out, I'm not talking about putting some money in the offering plate so that we can have a missionary go to wherever missionaries go. That, and that's a wonderful work. Don't get me wrong. That's a wonderful work. We're talking about we were saved to individually go talk to people about Jesus Christ. You know what happens when you're standing talking to friends or family of yours? And for some reason or other, you're in a supermarket or something, and the preacher shows up. You know what happens? Those people get real quiet real quick. You have the best chance of reaching your friends and your coworkers rather than bringing in the preacher to do it. Because they don't know me, but they work with you every day. They know your integrity. They know who you are. 
Bill Joyce shared a good story when we were over to their house some weeks ago about about working in a, in a mechanics bay and hurting his hand and he didn't say anything bad and finally one of his co-workers was so impressed with that he spoke up and Bill had a study with him he was baptized. He knew Bill, worked beside of him, knew who he was, knew the kind of person he was. So we're talking about individually going to proclaim to others about Jesus. And that phrase there, proclaim or sound forth that we see in 1 Peter 2.9 it's the only place it occurs in the entire New Testament in, in the original language. But what it means is it's the same idea as we see in Matthew 10, 27 and 8, where Jesus said, look, when I tell you in the dark, you go shout it from the rooftops. You go let everybody in town know about it. Don't hide it. Go tell them. Sound it forth like a trumpet. Proclaim it. Jesus went through all that he did, not only so he could take us to heaven, but so that we could take him and his message and go share it with people who don't know him. It's very similar to the same message that he gave his disciples that night in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 and following. They're all gathered and, and Jesus shows up and he, he talks to them and he explains, from them, explains to them from the scriptures and he opens their mind to the scriptures and he explains to them from the scriptures that all had to be fulfilled and then what does he do? He says, you're my witnesses of these things. You need to go tell somebody. The reason that, that all of this was fulfilled and I did all of this was so you'd go tell somebody. That was part of their mission. It's part of ours. Listen. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, he did not give up equality with God he did not leave his home in glory and come to en endure everything on earth, including the cross, to pay for our sins just so that we could sit in a pew on Sundays and prove to the world how pious we are. That is not why Jesus Christ went through the cross. We could sit in the pews without being saved. Jesus Christ came and saved us for a purpose, to serve. And specifically, there's a lot of ways we serve, yes, but one of the ways we are specifically to serve is to go share with somebody this God who's so awesome. I heard, I've heard some beautiful prayers up here. From it, It's wonderful to sit here as, as these men lead prayers and the reverence and the humility and the integrity and the sincerity but I hear in our prayers that we need to go and talk to people about Jesus, as I heard, and we do, we do. And I don't mean any irreverence, brethren. I don't. It's a wonderful thing, and we need to pray about it, but you know what? <coughs> then we need to go do it. It takes more than a prayer to make it happen. We can sing, God give us Christian homes, out of the songbook. Every Sunday we come together, every Wednesday night, we can sing that until, for the next 30 years. But if we don't devote ourselves to doing something about it at the same time we're praying about it, it's not going to get done. We were saved specifically to serve and to sound forth the good news to others. Listen, you know why Jesus came? He said in the scripture several places specifically why he came. Listen to this. 
Jesus said he came specifically to call sinners to repentance. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Jesus said he came specifically not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, verse 28. Jesus said that he came specifically to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19 and verse 10. Those are the reasons that he came. And one of the biggest reasons he came and purchased us at such awful cost was to give us the privilege. And it's a privilege. It's a blessing. It's an honor. He came to give us the privilege of sharing in that great co-mission with him. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We often call it the Great Commission. I prefer to call it the Great Co-Mission because it is a co-mission that we have the honor, the privilege of sharing with Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? He came to call sinners to repentance. He came to seek and to save the lost, to give his life, and he says, hey, that was my mission. I want you to join me in this great commission with me. Now, it's about this point, sermons like this, that some saints want to pull a Moses. They want to pull a Moses instead of trusting what Jesus had the Apostle Paul write in Philippians 4.13, where it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How many of you knew that verse was in the Bible? That's it? How many of you have been honest? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But we still want to pull a Moses. Lord, I can't do it. I can't talk to people. I can't do it, Lord. I can't talk to people. I, I, I can't talk to anybody about Jesus. Let me ask you a question. First questions to you Oklahoma fans, you OU fans. First question is for you. Do not respond out loud. We'll get to the OSU guys in a minute. You OU people. If last weekend OU had absolutely trounced Alabama, I mean blown them out of the stadium, would you have a problem telling anybody about that? Be honest. Now what about you OSU people? If in Bedlam, OSU had completely destroyed OU, I mean just, just embarrassed them, and then OSU had gone on to play against Bama, they beat them, I mean beat them like a drum. How many of you OSU folks, when, when they're talking about OSU, would go? None of you, would you? When your team wins, Especially if they beat a rival, you want to talk about it, right? <coughs> Our Lord Jesus Christ won the greatest victory that has ever been won. He won the most incredible, the most unbelievable. He won the ultimate victory. Jesus Christ won the victory over Satan. He won the victory over sin. He won the victory over death. He won the victory over everything connected to that. That is the most ultimate, awesome, incredible, unbelievable victory you will ever hear about. And guess what? We're not fans. We're not spectators. We're teammates. 
That victory, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, his resurrection over death, if we're in Christ, that's our victory. We're teammates with Jesus. We're co-heirs with him, Romans chapter 8. We're, we're spiritual siblings. It says in Hebrews 2, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. We're on his team, and he won the absolute ultimate victory. Can we go tell that to somebody? We can only go talk about our football team when they win. But we can't talk about the greatest victory ever won by our Lord and we're on his team. We have a problem. We have a problem. Folks, bench players often get cut. We can't afford to be bench players. In the same way, turn with me to the final scripture of the morning, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. If you purchase something, it has no warranty and the store won't take it back because you lose the slip. But if you purchase something and it doesn't work, what do you eventually wind up doing? Draw it out, right? Like the lady in the bulletin that some of you will read this afternoon, some of you may have already read about the lady in the burn pile. Sometimes you throw things out on a burn pile. You buy it, it don't work, it's a piece of junk, you throw it out. It doesn't accomplish the purpose that you purchased it to accomplish. Jesus Christ purchased us to serve, to serve others. He purchased us to go tell people about him, to go tell people what an awesome God he is. Now, some people still say, well, I, I know, Doug, I, I understand that. We're not all as shy as you are. Yeah, I understand. But do you know who the first missionary was, chronologically speaking, in the Bible? You think you've got a problem talking to people? Watch this. I have heard it said, and I believe it's true, that the first missionary, certainly one of the first missionaries, if not the very first one, that Jesus Christ specifically sent out, we find in Mark chapter 5. Let's read a little about his history. Mark 5, verses 1 through 5. And they came to the other side of the sea. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man who had an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Quite the guy. How'd you like him for your next-door neighbor? Keep you up all night shrieking, busting chains. This guy was a mess. Didn't have any close friends, apparently. We read on in the chapter and we see that Jesus heals him. We see that Jesus, when he gets ready to leave the area, this man wants to go with him. But look what Jesus did. Jesus sent him out as a missionary. Look what Jesus says in verses 18 and 20. When he, that is, Jesus, got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, watch this, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Where did Jesus tell him to go have a discussion of the book of Habakkuk or Malachi with this guy? 
Where did Jesus tell this man, you've got to go and you've got to make sure that you know the entire Bible before you can talk to you? What did Jesus say? Look what he said. Go tell your friends what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Can you do that? Can you do that? Has God been good to you or not? Yes or no? This means yes, this means no. Let's try again. Has God been good to you? Has God had compassion on you? Has God done good things for you? Can you go tell somebody what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had? Can you do that? I asked around who the youngest Christian in this room was. And I was told it was Aaron Bond. And I'm not picking on Aaron. But what I'm saying is this. The youngest Christian in this room who understands repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, the youngest Christian in this room who's been in that tank, who has come up out, should be able and to go tell people, let me tell you what the Lord did for me. The Lord saved me. Can you say that? How many of us can't say the Lord saved me? How many of us can't say, Jesus loved me so much? How many of us can't say, God's been so good to me? That's, that's what that guy was sent out with. Go tell your friends how great God's been to you. And there's not a Christian from the youngest to the oldest who should not have a wonderful story of how awesome God is. And so, this new year, I'm going to kind of have a theme in my preaching. It's not going to be every sermon, but it's going to be the lion's share of them. Oh, that's my plan. And that theme is going to be SOS in 2019. Very simple. SOS in 2019. And it stands for Save One Soul. Save One Soul. Sometimes we get so overwhelmed. Go into all the world, and I can't go into all the world because, because I'm just one person and life happens. You know what? You can't get to two until you start with one. Our theme pick out one person you know who's lost, pray for them. Work with them. Don't try to work with the whole world. You, can't, you cannot save the whole world. To start with number one, at least. Save one soul. Or did you not know that we must be about our Father's business, Luke 2 and verse 49? Even the youngest here can do that. And you know how it'll work if all of us save one soul this year? There's probably a hundred and... 30 of us here this morning, if all of us go out and save one soul, you know what that means next year at this time, first sermon of the year, I'll be talking to 260 people. Are all things still possible through Christ? Can you tell somebody what God's done for you? That's all he asks. Let's make 2019 the SOS year, saving one soul, and here's why. You were purchased for a purpose. You were redeemed for a reason. You were saved to serve. You were purchased, redeemed, and saved to go sound forth his praises and tell others what an awesome God you have so that they want to come and have him as their God too. Let's determine to do that in SOS 2019. This morning, if you are here, 
and you are not a member of the church, you have never been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, which is what God requires, then he adds you to the church, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. If you're here and maybe you don't understand that, we'd love to have a Bible study with you, or if you study the scriptures and you're ready to surrender your life up to being a servant like Jesus, to having your sins all washed away, if you would be saved to serve, we'd love to baptize you this morning and welcome a new baby into the family of Christ. I know most of you have already done that, but if you're here this morning and you just need the prayers to have the strength to go tell somebody about Jesus because you're shy, because you freeze up, because it's just so hard, we'd love to pray for you. Probably if there's one comes forward, there's at least <clears throat> that need to. If you have a need this morning, please come to the front as we stand and sing.